Recently deceased individuals' remains often require transporting over long distances. In the case of cremated remains, they often go via the Postal Service. And the Postal Office of Inspector General has found USPS needs to improve some of its procedures for handling them. We get more now from Audit Director Amy Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. And what prompted this inquiry? It sounds like maybe some cremated remains, which I presume were in a kind of expensive container, got lost or spilled or what happened? What made you look at this? So this report is in response to a congressional inquiry from Senator Mike Braun's office. Senior leadership asked that we assess the effectiveness of those procedures for accepting and handling cremated remains within the Postal Service Network to ensure that the remains are handled with care. Got it. And these are brought to postal offices locally? I mean, how does it usually happen? And yes. who's doing the mailing? Would it be the individuals or would it be professional handlers of cremated remains? So, Tom, that's a great question. There are two ways that they come into the Postal Service Network. One is by the customers who wish to mail their cremated remains. In addition, there are companies that do ship these cremated remains out to recipients. All right. And what can go wrong? What are some of the issues you uncovered? So what we found overall is that they were not in compliance with those acceptance procedures, proper labeling them and inducting them into the network. What we also found is that Procedures for monitoring shipments of cremated remains within the processing facilities were not always followed. And we also found an opportunity to reduce the potential risk of missing and damaged cremated remains by enhancing packaging requirements. Got it. And these then come with special requirements already extant in the postal system because of the nature of them, which are sacred to people. Let's put it that way. So it's a matter of following the procedures that are already mandated to begin with. Yes. So customers, if they are shipping their own cremated remains in their own boxes, are required to use sturdy boxes and follow the Postal Service instructions, which are outlined on their website on how to ship those cremated remains. In addition, they can bring them into local facilities who will help them package and ship those cremated remains appropriately. Did anything go wrong that came to light? Because it sounds like a request from a senator. Probably it sounds like a constituent complained that something got lost or damaged. So we did not identify any lost or damaged cremated remains. We just identified the potential that there could be if the procedures are not followed appropriately. Yeah, because these do, besides the value of the fact that it's someone's beloved remains, these urns are heavy and they're expensive. So it's not like mailing something in a mailing tube like a poster. These are substantial packages, aren't they? Some of them are. So the urns, the fully um, submitted cremated remains are heavy. There are other ways that people have shipped cremated remains. We found third-party companies who ship cremated remains of loved ones and pets through articles such as jewelry and works of art. So there are different sizes of cremated remains shipped. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I still have one of our dog's ashes in a nice wooden box, as a matter of fact. What did you recommend then? So overall, what we recommended and some of the recommendations that the Postal Service agreed to follow were to develop a process for communicating these procedures to employees to ensure that they are accepted appropriately. And we also recommended that they implement some guidance to verify that the cremated remains are packaged and prepared in accordance with policy. And lastly, we recommended that they ensure kit boxes for cremated remains are readily available. So if someone brings in remains, the local office would have what they need to ship those things. 
Yes. In addition, if a customer wants to order their own kit boxes before bringing them into the postal facility, um, we recommended that the Postal Service ensure that they get those timely. We're speaking with Amy Jones. She's Audit Director in the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General. And not to get too fine into the details, but are sometimes remains mailed not in the final container that they will be reposing in, but maybe in, for lack of a better word, the equivalent of a Ziploc bag, so that you really need to have them boxed well versus when they're in a steel or metal type of container or wood. So the Postal Service does have requirements for packaging, one of them being a SIF-proof container where it has to be sealed in a plastic bag, then placed within appropriate box that's sturdy and durable. So that is the requirement to ensure that if anything were to break or any damage were to incur, that that would be concealed. Um, They also recommend that they put a valid address inside of those boxes just in case that box breaks and becomes damaged. Sure. Now, you made six recommendations, and the Postal Service agreed with only two of them. The first two were develop and implement a process for reoccurring communications to the locals and telling them what they have to do. Also, develop and implement guidance requiring retail clerks to verify or prepared and packaged. They agreed with those recommendations to make sure people are trained and knowledgeable at the local retail level, but they disagreed with the other recommendations to update the procedures and reiterate the procedures for monitoring along the route to the final destination and so on. Why would they, I mean, I guess you can't attribute the motives to the management, but what's going on here that they disagreed with so many of the recommendations? So oftentimes we see some of our recommendations not being agreed upon. So we work with the Postal Service to find a way that they can resolve these disagreements And currently, we're working through that resolution process on a way that we both agreed to close out these recommendations on a schedule that the Postal Service agrees to. Yeah, because like, for example, develop a plan to ensure cremated remain kit boxes are readily available to customers. There's a lot of locations where this basically every post office that has a retail window then would have to have these supplies. And maybe they're worried that they can get the supplies to every post and branch. Well, that was actually one recommendation. So we had three recommendations they agreed to, and they agreed to ensure that those kit boxes are readily available. So that one is something that they do plan to do. Okay. Uh, anything else we we need to know about this? Luckily, you know, that's the only way remains are mailed anyhow. The airlines have to deal with the other way, <laughs> and that's not part of your uh, situation. Well, I would like to let customers know that the Postal Service does make every attempt to deliver those cremated remains. If the Postal Service exhausts all resources to identify the sender or recipient due to mislabeling damage or invalid address, they do take care of those cremated remains and hold on to them until a resolution is due found for delivery. You know, every decade or so, something happens where a letter mailed in 1937 pops up. You know, you see these stories from time to time. Let's hope that doesn't happen with a cremated remains that ends up in the system for 50 or 100 years and finds descendants of the recipient. Yes. Amy Jones is Audit Director of the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General. As always, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
as CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.